In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, of God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from Psalm 72. Psalm 72. Each psalm has a title. And the title of this psalm is A Psalm of Solomon. That's why very few commentators attributed this psalm to Solomon as the author. But the very first verse and last verse of the psalm reflected that this psalm was not written by Solomon, but written by David. And according to the Syriac version, the title is not a psalm of Solomon, but a psalm of David when he made Solomon king. That's why some regarded this psalm as a psalm written by David about Solomon and to Solomon. So this psalm about his son Solomon and written to his son Solomon. Actually, in the Arabic version, it is written a psalm to Solomon, means written to Solomon. So, it is probably a psalm of David composed in his last days when he had set his beloved son Solomon on the throne of the kingdom. But as we are going to study tonight, this psalm speaks about the Messiah. So the Messiah is the truly the subject of this psalm. Tertullian observed that this psalm belonged to Christ and not to Solomon. Also, many of the Jewish writers, both early and contemporary, acknowledge that the Messiah is intended here. Because why the Messiah? As we're going to study together, David speaks of everlasting kingdom, universal kingdom, kingdom of perfect peace, kingdom of perfect submission of its inhabitants, kingdom through which all the people on earth are blessed. And all these descriptions apply only on the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of the Messiah. Also, this psalm is a liturgical psalm. It was chosen by the early church as a special psalm for Epiphany, for telling the worship of the whole nations to the Messiah, also remembering the visit of the wise men from the Gentiles to submit to the king. Two months almost in Kiah, you will see there are many quotes from this psalm in the Long Hose of Kiah. St. Augustine commented on the title and says, For Solomon. Indeed, the psalm title is foreknoted. But things are spoken of the reign which could not apply to that Solomon, king of Israel, after the flesh. He's saying, if you want to apply what's written in the psalm, cannot apply to King Solomon, son of David, 
on, yeah, according to the flesh, according to those things which Holy Scriptures speaks concerning King Solomon. But they can most pertinently apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Solomon here is a symbol of Jesus Christ, symbol of the Messiah. So this psalm is a prayer for Solomon's reign with an eye toward the future reign of the Messiah. So while David wrote it because of the reign of his son King Solomon, but with an eye toward the kingdom of the Messiah, the reign of the Messiah, it speaks of the prayers of all the people for the king and the importance of understanding the king's role in relationship to God and to the people. The book of Psalms were composed or divided into four books. The first book from Psalm 1 to 41. Second book from 42 to 72. This psalm actually is the last psalm of the second book of Psalms. This is the last psalm of the second book of Psalms. It's 20 verses. From verse 1 to 4, the character of the kingdom. 5 to 7, a kingdom with no end. That's why it is the kingdom of the Messiah. 8 to 11, breadth of the kingdom, 12 to 14, nature of the kingdom, 15 to 17, a blessed kingdom, 18 to 20, closing doxology of praise. We will actually study today the first 11 verses, the character of the kingdom, a kingdom with no end, the breadth of the kingdom. Give the king your judgment, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. So David is praying, God, give the king your judgments, and give the son of the king your righteousness. Why? He will judge your people with righteousness, and your poor with justice. So, give your judgment and your righteousness to the king in order to judge the people with righteousness and the poor with justice. So this is a prayer of David imploring the divine assistance on his son Solomon to judge with justice. He does not ask for riches or power for his son as the children of the world are accustomed to ask. But he asked to give Solomon the grace of properly fulfilling his duty as a righteous and a just king. David knew that he could be called a good king only if he ruled the people with justice. When we find the king or the governor or the president ruling the people with justice, we call this leader 
a good king, a good president, a good governor. Solomon himself asked the very same thing of God when God appeared to him and told him, ask whatever and I will grant you. He asked for wisdom. Why? To rule the people in righteousness and in justice. Just judgment is the constant characteristic of the ideal king. As we read in Isaiah 11, 3, Isaiah 16, 5, Isaiah 28, 6, Isaiah 32, 1. Who is the lawgiver? Who is the lawgiver? God. Because God is the source of all judgment. The king, only the king is his representative for administering it. Many people right now argue with us about, for example, divorce or abortion. As they want the church to give permission for divorce or give permission for abortion. And we tell them, we are not the lawgiver. God is the source of all judgment. But we are representatives of God, execute the ruling of God, the judgment of God. It's not in our authority. And we are not kinder more than God. Definitely God who gave the law, He is just, He is kind, He is merciful. It is not in our authority to change the ruling of God. Though the Son refers ultimately to the Messiah and of His reign, yet perhaps as the psalmist David believed the reign of Solomon would be in some proper sense symbolic of the reign. So the, the kingdom of Solomon is a symbol to the kingdom of the Messiah. And it was his desire, the desire of David, the reign of the one might, the reign of King Solomon, might as far as possible resemble that of the Messiah. He said, give the king your judgment. Your judgment means your law, your knowledge, your authority, the ability to execute God's judgments or the law of God. One of the character of a king is that he is the source of justice. The source, when people, they feel they are unfairly treated, they go to the king. Especially if he's a just king. In order, do you know the story when two ladies, uh, they argued about uh, a baby, whether uh, this baby is her son or the other pretty son? They went to uh, King Solomon. And Solomon, by the grace of God and by the wisdom of God, he said, let us split the son into two halves and each one takes half. So one mother refused and said, no, give him to, to the other lady. Then King Solomon knew this is the real mother because the real mother refused to divide her son. So that is one of the character of a king is that he is the source 
of justice. So, Augustine said, he says here, give the king your judgment and your righteousness to the king's son. So he said the king is God the father and the king's son is Jesus Christ. Because the father is king and the son also is a king. As St. Augustine says, the Lord himself in the gospel says, the father judges not anyone but all judgment he has given to the son. This is then give the king your judgment. He that is king is also the son of the king because God the father also is certainly king. So God the father gave the judgment to the son. God the father who is king gave the judgment to his son who is also king. Why? He will judge your people with righteousness. When he takes this judgment, then he will have wisdom to judge God's people. As I told you the story of King Solomon. I want you to notice here he used the word your people, your poor in verse 2. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Your people. For they are God's people more than his people. And therefore he must not govern them according to his own will and pleasure. We should not govern the people according to our will. But according to the rules of God's word and for his service and glory. And by the way, the ruling in the church is not democratic. Democratic means the ruling of the people and not dictatorship, which is the ruling of the leader. But the ruling in the church, we call it theocratic. Theo from the word theos means God. So theocratic, it is the ruling of God. It doesn't matter what the bishop wants or what the people wants. But what it really matters, what God wants. It is a theocratic ruling in the church. St. Cyril of Alexandria observed that the judgment God given to the king is the one mentioned by St. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. This judgment according to his purpose, to unite all things in Christ, so what, why God gave this judgment and this ruling just to oppress us? Definitely not. To exercise power over us? Definitely not. But the ultimate goal as we read in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, to unite all things in one in Christ. Indeed, St. Cyril continues, in his days justice will flourish and peace abound. As if to say, in the days of Christ, through faith, justice will spring up for us, and as we turn to God, peace will abound. Moreover, it is precisely we who are the rich, the poor, and the children of the poor, whom this king rescues and saves, 
So the king will rescue the rich and the poor and the children of the poor. And if first of all he calls the holy apostles rich because they were poor in spirit, because in First Corinthians he said he chose the rich in order to put to shame the proud. So St. Cyril is saying if he calls the holy apostles wretched because they were poor in spirit, he has consequently saved us as the sons and daughters of the poor, who are the sons and daughters of the apostles, justifying us and making us holy in the faith through the Holy Spirit. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Your poor was just in the perspective of the Bible, violating the right of the poor is an act against God. When you study the Bible, if we violate the rights of the poor as if we are sinning against God himself. Because the Lord is the defender of the poor and the oppressed, of the widows and of the orphans. And he describes God's people as God's poor, your poor. For all men, however rich they may appear to be, are poor in God's sight. So the richest person on earth, even if he's a believer, he is poor. If we compare his riches with the eternal riches. So, all of us, we need God's assistance in everything. And whatever we have, we have it from God. Not as a gift, but as a loan. Whatever God gave us, it is as a loan. Meaning, we are not the owners. We are just the stewards. We are not the owners of whatever God gave us. Therefore, God can demand it back and take it away from them and ask them to give an account of their stewardship as he will ask all of us in the last day give an account of your stewardship. St. Augustine comments in the use of the word your people and your poor and says whereby indeed he shows that the people of God ought to be poor Poor doesn't mean materialistic, but not proud, but humble. As we read in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3, the mountains will bring peace to the people, and the little hills by righteousness. The mountains and the hills which are the characteristic features of Palestine, represent poetically the whole land. Palestine or Israel is just mountains and hills, mountains and hills. So when he says mountains and hills, means the whole land. So the whole land under a just government, when the whole land is under just government, will bear the fruit of peace and general welfare to its inhabitants. That's why he said, when you give the king your judgment and your justice to the son of king, 
then the mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. Isaiah described peace as the result of righteousness in Isaiah 32 verse 17 and peace was the distinguishing characteristic of Solomon's reign. Sometimes mountains represent human governments in the Bible. St. Augustine explained this. Let me explain first before we read the quote. He said the mountains like the leaders of the people and the hills those who follow the example of the leaders. That's why the hills live by righteousness and the leaders, the mountains, by their just government they grant peace. That's what he said here. The mountains are the greater, the hills are the less. Those then who are eminent in the church for passing sanctity are the mountains. Those who teach people sanctity, who meet to teach other men also by those speaking as that they may be faithfully taught and by so living as that they may imitate them to their prophet. So the eminent, the leaders in the church teach people by word and by action. That's what St. Augustine says. Me to teach others by word and by so living, by action. But the hills are they that follow the excellence of the former of the mountains by their own obedience. So the hills, when they obey the mountains, they will bring righteousness. So the fruit of this righteous judgment is peace to the people. And where peace and justice reign, few are found to harm their own neighbor by word or deed. So when there is peace and righteousness, there is no harm. Therefore, the king of such a place will have no trouble in protecting the poor from the few oppressors who must be found in every community. When there is peace and righteousness, then the leader of this country, it will be easy for him to protect the poor from the oppressors, as we read in verse 4. He, the king, will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressors. So he mentioned three things. Bring justice to the poor, save the children of the needy, break in pieces the oppressors. So according to St. Augustine, peace and justice, righteousness, go together. He who enjoys the true peace will enjoy justice as well. He will bring justice to the poor of the people, the oppressed and the defenseless, like the orphans, like the widows are the special care of the true king. And he will save the children of the needy. 
in a spiritual sense, the Messiah will save us from our sins. And will break in pieces the oppressor. Who is the oppressor? Satan. The oppressor. Satan is the god of this world. The oppressor is the accuser of the brethren, Satan, who entices our first parents, Adam and Eve, and deceives mankind. It was prophesied by the Lord Jesus Christ to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that Christ will break the head of the serpent, head of Satan. He was manifested in the flesh, Jesus Christ, to destroy the work of Satan. And Jesus Christ has broken him and all his schemes in pieces and spoiled all his principalities and powers on the cross. Verse 5. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. So, verse 5 to 7 describe the eternal nature of God's kingdom. He now begins to pass from Solomon to Christ. Because this verse cannot be applied to Solomon. Solomon died, but the sun and the moon is still shining. So when he says, they shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure, still the sun and moon endure until now. So it's not about Solomon. Throughout all generations, not the generation of Solomon, again, then in verse 5, he passed from Solomon to Christ. So this clear, clearly points to Christ's kingdom, whose kingdom is eternal and has no end, not the kingdom of Solomon. But let me ask you, when he said, as long as the sun and moon endure, does this mean, because one day sun and moon will pass away, does this mean after this the kingdom of Christ will not exist? But we say in the creed, his kingdom shall have no end. And through all generations. So when this generation come to end in the second coming of Christ, does this mean that his kingdom and, and his reign will end? Definitely not. This reminds me of a verse when the Lord told us, Behold, I will be with you unto the end of the ages. So, does this mean after the end of the ages he will not be with us? No, he will be with us eternally. So, when he says, as long as the sun and moon endure, doesn't mean after this, he will not be a king. So, as long as the sun and moon endures, means in the presence of the moon, throughout all generation to the end of the time. But when David says that Christ's kingdom would continue as long as sun and moon endure, he by no means implies that there would be an end to his kingdom when the sun would cease to shine. For Christ's kingdom will endure forever, though the sun will one day cease to shine. 
and through all generations is to be understood in a similar sense. When all generations shall have passed away, Christ's kingdom will not also pass away. So, what Christ meant, what did he mean when he told the apostles he will leave them at a given time and then he said to them, Behold, I am with you all the days to the end of the world. Does this mean he would not be with them after the end of the world? Definitely not. He would be with them here through his grace and his help. So they would be with him in the world to come in happiness and glory. St. Augustine translated they shall endure with the sun, not as long as the sun endures. They shall endure with the sun. It was claimed that Christianity will not endure but for a short time. But according to the translation of St. Augustine, he says, no, Christianity will endure with the sun to the end of the ages. But here David confirms that the church, the moon, will endure through all generations. If the sun represents Christ, the sun of righteousness, the moon represents the church, and the moon endures throughout all generations. Verse 6, and you will hear verse 6 several times in the month of Kiah. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before moon, like showers that water the earth. Like shower water the earth means clean and refreshing. This is a beautiful picture of the reign of the King of Peace, Jesus Christ. Though the psalmist now describes the coming of Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God. That's why I told you verse 6, you will hear it several times during the month of Kiah. The spread and the unique uniqueness of his kingdom. He shall come down. Christ will come down like rain upon grass everywhere before morning, like showers that water the earth. So he described his coming first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles under the figures of rain, a fleece, the earth, uh, such as the signs Gideon got. Many fathers like scholar origin, St. John Chrysostom, St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, believe that the moon grass, the fleece of wool of Gideon, refers to the Jews. So when he said, like rain upon the grass before mowing, he said this grass before mowing represents the Jews, and the earth represents the Gentiles. So he will come to the Jews, then to the whole earth. Christ first came to the Jews 
represented by the fleece of wool or the grass before moon, while the whole world beside was perfectly dry. Dry means they did not receive Christ. Like what Gideon asked from God. Then the earth and all the ground refers to the Gentiles. Then he came to the Gentiles through the preaching of the apostles. And the, then the earth around was saturated with the rain of the truth of salvation. The fleece alone remained dry, which represents the Jews who did not believe. If you remember when Gideon wanted a sign from God, first he asked that the fleece to have rain but dry around it. So this represents the Jews who received the word of God, but the whole earth did not receive it yet. Then the second time, he asked this to be dry and the whole earth around it to be wet. Represent the Gentiles believed through the preaching of the apostles, but the Jews did not believe in him. That's why they remained dry. As the wicked will be reproved and punished, so good men will be encouraged progressed and uplifted shall flourish. Verse 7, in his days, in the days of the Messiah, the righteous shall flourish, an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. So in the kingdom of Christ, the wicked will be reproved and punished, but the good men will be encouraged progress, uplifted, and flourish. And the abundance of peace until the moon is no more, that is, as long as there is time and the world shall last, there will be abundance in peace. But the peace is internal. Yes, the martyrs were tortured, but they did not lose their peace. Peace even in the midst of tribulation. So, which neither was nor could be the case under the reign of Solomon. And this verse cannot apply to Solomon, which was not of very long duration. The kingdom of Solomon did not endure until there was no more moon. And the peace of whose kingdom was sadly disturbed and almost wholly lost after his death. Actually, after Solomon, the kingdom was split divided into two kingdoms, kingdom of Israel and kingdom of Judah. But which was undoubtedly and eminently accomplished in Christ, who came to bring peace on earth and left it as a legacy to his disciples. My peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world will give, so I do. Upon Christ's coming, there will be true justification and there will be the most perfect peace with God and with all men. We are reconciled with God. We are justified. We become righteous in the, in the eyes of God. So, 
in a limited sense, this was true of Solomon. Why? Because of his wisdom, good men were encouraged in his kingdom and the land enjoyed peace. But in the greater sense, it points only to Jesus Christ. And this connection between the righteous and peace, righteous will flourish an abundance of peace, remind us of Malki Sadiq, the one who was and is both king of righteousness and king of peace. Malki Sadiq, Sadiq means righteousness. So Malki Sadiq is the king of righteousness. And he was king of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem means peace. So he's the king of peace and king of righteousness. The peace which Jesus brings is not a superficial peace or short-lived. It is abundant in its depth and its duration. Verse 8. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's the breadth of his kingdom. From sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The psalmist now is describing the expanding of Christ's kingdom, which is the church is spread all over the world. It does not appear that any particular seas are meant from sea to sea, which sea and which sea. So rather the idea is that the earth is set in the midst of the sea because oceans are around all the continents. So from sea to sea means the Messiah's dominion will reach from shore to shore to cover all the continents on the earth. What about from the river to the end of the earth? St. Augustine says, from the river to the ends of the earth are only an explanation of from sea to sea. As if he said, he will rule over the whole world from sea to sea, for the earth is everywhere surrounded by the ocean, as I explained everywhere surrounded by the ocean. Some say from sea to sea meant from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea. So far, Solomon's dominion extended, and so David's also. So yes, under David and Solomon, Israel had its greatest extent of territory from Mediterranean to the Red Sea. However, the meaning is more generally from one sea to another or in all parts of the world. Because as I told you, the six continents are surrounded by oceans. In which sense it is truly and fully accomplished in Christ and in Him only. Though many leaders throughout history have sought to rule the entire earth, like the Roman Empire, like the Greek Empire, etc., but only Christ succeeded. Verse 9. We read it in the Nativity, in the host of the Nativity, and in the Salis of the Feast of Nativity. The kings of Tarshish, 
and off the isles will bring presents about the wise men. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him for the Messiah, and his enemies, the enemies of the Messiah, will lick the dust. The same is said of the Messiah in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 10 where he is manifestly spoken of as here regard to the extent of his dominion the whole earth and the son of Sirach combined them with the promise to Abraham as we read in Sirach chapter 44 from verse 20 to 23 Therefore, by an oath, he gave glory to him among his people. So as to increase him, God gave glory to Abraham among his people. So as to increase Abraham like the dust of the earth, and to, the, to exalt his offspring like the stars, and to give an inheritance to them from sea to sea, and from the river even to the end of the earth. So Sirach took the verse, verse 8, and applied it to the promise to Abraham. Verse 9, 10, and 11, in a way was fulfilled in Solomon's life. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 23, and all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. So, though this passage was fulfilled to some extent for Solomon, however, its complete and glorious fulfillment can be found only in Christ. Verse 9, those who dwell in wilderness refers to the people as shepherd and traveler tribes. People who have no permanent home, who wander from place to place, those who dwell in wilderness, they will bow to him. His enemies will lick the dust. Lick the dust means they prostrate themselves at his feet with their faces in the dust. That's what it means. So they who fall down become as prostrate as if they were licking the ground. So the idea is that these wandering people from place to place, these unsettled flux would become subject to the Messiah or would bow down and acknowledge his authority. This can be fulfilled only under the Messiah. It can also convey to us the total subjection and prostration of the sinners believing through faith and offering repentance. And they who will not willingly fall down before Christ here on earth and piously and faithfully worship him will be compelled on the last day to fall down before Christ and to lie under his footstool.
verse 10 the king of Tarshish Tarshish was the wealthy Venetian colony of Tartessus in southern Spain and of the isles will bring presents isles are those of the Mediterranean the island of the Mediterranean then the king of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts Sheba was the south eastern Arabia famous for its wealth and commerce Seba mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 verse 7 among Kushite peoples Ethiopia Ethiopia is the land of Kush and coupled with Egypt and Ethiopia in Isaiah 43 verse 3 and Isaiah 44, 45 verse 14 is generally supposed to be the kingdom of Miro in, in Ethiopia but may denote a Kushite state of the Arabian Gulf so the meaning here the most remote and the most wealthy nation unite in honoring the righteous king and the word seems to be used here to denote any distant region abounding with riches this was true of king solomon for some king offered him gift as we read in second Corinthians chapter 9 verse 23 each man brought his present articles of silver gold garment armor spices horses and mules at a set rate year by year we read also in first king chapter 10 verse 10 to 11 that the queen of seba gave the king 120 talent of gold spices in great quantity and precious stones there never again came such abundance of spices as the queen of sheba gave to king solomon and also ships uh, of hiram which brought gold from Ophir brought great quantities of almond wood and precious stones from Ophir however this will be unquestionably verified in Christ who is and will show himself to be king of kings lord of lords and will be universally acknowledged obeyed worshipped by all the kings and nations of the earth and also this verse befits Christ our Lord who at his birth king from the east the wise men came to worship him and offered him gifts verse 11 which is the last verse in our Bible study tonight yes all kings shall fall down before him all nations shall serve him this was prophesied in a beautiful way by prophet Nathan in 2nd Samuel verse, uh, chapter 7 which had in mind both David immediate son Solomon and David ultimate son Jesus Christ so the fulfillment in Solomon's days for the king shall fall down for him we can find it in 1st king chapter 10 from verse 23 to 25 but the ultimate fulfillment 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. This actually concludes our Bible study from Psalm 72 tonight. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.